Ms. Nelson, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. It's good to be here. So we'll get right into it. You've bounced around, uh, living in various locations throughout your life. What brought you back and keeps you in Madison? Well, I was born here, uh, and when my father was elected to the United States Senate, I was six years old. We moved to Washington, where I grew up and uh, completed high school, uh, returning to Wisconsin to go to college. Um, but I had spent every summer of my life here. Uh, I went to camp in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Went with my family up to Door County. Went up to uh, the Mellon area, to the Northwoods, which is a very special place to me. And so while I uh, grew up in D.C., I was always uh, not far from uh, Madison, which has always felt like home to me. And I moved back here about 14 years ago after working at the Nature Conservancy. I was there almost 20 years. and. I had grown tired of traveling around the world and uh, attending uh, never-ending climate treaty negotiations that didn't, weren't getting us where we needed yeah. to go. And I had a great job opportunity, and there's such a fabulous, fabulous quality of life uh, in Madison. I've got uh, lots of friends and family and place to grow a garden. and nature out my door and it's just a you know it's a really really great town sweet so you're currently working for outrider a nonprofit yeah. here in madison yeah what's that experience been like and what are the goals that y'all are working towards well we're seeking to help people understand that climate change impacts everyone no matter where you live whether that's in madison wisconsin or miami florida or bangkok thailand Climate change impacts all of us, no matter where we are, and uh, all of us have the opportunity and uh, obligation, I, I would suggest, uh, to be a part of the climate change solution. And so we spend a lot of time helping people understand the local impacts of climate change and how it affects uh, our lives, uh, wherever we uh, uh, may be, and how each of us has a role to play in helping address this extraordinary daunting crisis. All right, so how did growing up with a father who was only a public official but a celebrated environmentalist shape your view? And have you ever felt that you've been pigeonholed by your name and the things that your father did? Well, let's take that in, in the two parts that it is. Um, being Gaylord, now I, I gave a talk last night uh, and uh, I started my talk by saying that being Gaylord Nelson's daughter, being born Gaylord Nelson's daughter is a little bit like winning the lottery, you know, though I didn't <laughs> even have to buy a ticket. And I go on to joke, you know, don't think it hasn't occurred to me. I could have been born Richard Nixon's daughter. Um, <laughs> though I hasten to add um, his environmental record, Richard Nixon's environmental record was pretty good. And he... Uh, signed into law by executive order, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, and a whole bunch of environmental laws after the first Earth Day. Um, but uh, being um, my father's daughter, a successful and popular politician, gave me a richness, um, not in terms of material wealth, but in terms of experience. And I uh, had the uh, opportunity to sit around the dinner table and listen to some of the world's greatest 
progressive voices um, and public servants. Uh, I, um, when I was young, I had a big crush on Bobby Kennedy and would follow him and my dad around the Senate and watch them debate the ideas of the day. And the Vice President of the United States, Hubert Humphrey, would, was often a guest at our house for dinner and hearing uh, these guys debate issues and um, talk about what it means to be a public servant, what it means to um, fight for your principles and try to make the world a better place was just an extraordinary, you know, an extraordinary gift, really. So, Wisconsin had, in the past, I should say, long viewed as a champion of progressive environmental thought. Not so much currently, I would argue. So, how has the state, at, at the state level, how, is we, how have we fallen behind some of the benchmarks that that had been set in the past and that you would like to see? I don't think we have a ruler that's long enough to measure just how far we have fallen. Um, and it's unfortunate because Wisconsin's environmental legacy has a long and rich bipartisan history. Last night I was with my good friend Tommy Thompson, former Republican uh, uh, governor of Wisconsin. Uh, he likes to tease me. Um, that he uh, protected more state land, conserved more state land than my father did, which is true. Uh, he was governor much longer. Um, the Knowles Nelson Stewardship Fund, which is a flagship um, model program for uh, protecting and conserving public land, and public waterways, uh, is named after Warren Knowles, the Republican governor who succeeded my father and uh, also my father. Um, that's a long, long bipartisan tradition. And uh, in recent times, uh, it has, unfortunately, under Governor Walker, um, uh, uh, deteriorated in really, really significant and unfortunate ways. I think it's emblematic of some of the divisiveness we see across the country, in which uh, uh, it's harder and harder uh, for uh, Democrats and Republicans to come together. Uh, it was not always the case here in Wisconsin. I have to believe that we, if we work at it, we can restore uh, that bipartisan commitment to the environment. Uh, certainly we're seeing progress today uh, with Governor Evers' uh, commitment to address climate change, commitment to address uh, our drinking water uh, uh, crisis here in Wisconsin. And uh, that will be an uphill challenge because of the legislature. But at the end of the day, you know, I fundamentally believe that, uh, that everyone's right to breathe clean air and drink clean water is uh, a right that transcends political party. And if we uh, come together and talk about this, uh, uh, we can find common ground, and uh, I'm hopeful that we're on a path to restoring greater cooperation over these critical issues that so affect our quality of life. So what would be some of some substantive action that you think could help address combating climate change, for example, in Wisconsin? Well, uh, there's uh, two uh, different uh, things that need to happen, and they need to happen simultaneously. We're at a point uh, in which 
we have to both reduce emissions and prepare for climate change because we it's it's like a loaded dice that we've mm -hmm. thrown on the table that we are going to experience we are experiencing a warming planet we will continue to experience a warming planet with that uh, we have really good information on climate change impacts in Wisconsin and that was done at the that research at the University of Wisconsin is really a national model taking the intergovernmental panel on climate change data and modeling it and looking at impacts in Wisconsin impacts on um, food, agriculture, farming, impacts on fisheries, forestry, uh, impacts on public infrastructure in urban areas. We have to prepare for changing climate and think of everything from the built environment in which we live in the city to things like uh, how we protect and restore wetlands, which can act as a natural means by which we mitigate uh, flooding from severe uh, rainfall events, for example. Uh, there's a lot we can do to reduce our own uh, emissions, both as individuals uh, and government through incentives for uh, uh, investments in renewable energy, um, to um, improving our transportation infrastructures so that uh, it is uh, more uh, friendly for electric vehicles, for public transportation, uh, and uh, things like that. All right. Uh, so have you had an opportunity to look at the Green New Deal? Um, and if so, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, that's a great um, question. And I think f uh, it's important for people to understand it is not actually a piece of legislation and it's not actually a plan. It's, um, I would characterize it as a bold vision for the future that looks well beyond um, the need to rapidly address the uh, climate change crisis. It looks at and describes an aspirational vision for the future. And I think it's very useful in that regard. It talks about affordable housing. It talks about universal health care. talks about um, uh, job security uh, and if you think about the climate crisis as an opportunity to invest in a brighter future uh, in, through clean energy technology, through improvements in how we produce our food, um, through improvements in how we uh, transport ourselves and our goods and services, um, then you can imagine that there's a real appeal to addressing the climate crisis and looking at these uh, ambitious but important values uh, that affect the quality of everyone's life. It makes it uh, for a challenging conversation sometimes because it loans itself to being interpreted how um, the opponents or supporters might care to interpret it because it's not a specific uh, plan or piece of legislation. At the other end of the spectrum is uh, uh, putting a uh, taxing carbon, putting a price on uh, carbon or fossil fuel emissions and letting the marketplace uh, uh, respond to that price by rewarding uh, low emitting uh, 
um, sources of energy, for example. And I, I mentioned to you at the uh, top of the program that I'm working with the conservative former congressman, former climate denier Bob Inglis, and Varshini uh, Prakash, the co-founder of the Sunrise Movement. They, would they both believe very strongly that uh, the climate crisis requires uh, robust and immediate response from all of us and see a moral imperative in addressing it. Bob is an evangelical Christian. He believes it's his duty uh, to protect God's creation. He, uh, his story of transformation from a climate denier to, to a climate change champion is absolutely fascinating. And I would encourage you to watch the video explaining to him how that happened. And it was because of something his son said to him. Mm. Um, uh, and it's, a, it's just a fascinating story. My, my point is, Bob would tell you that the Green New Deal is, uh, um, uh, uh, requires big government and social engineering. That would be, I, I mean, I'm, these are not his words, mm -hmm. but I suspect something along those yeah. lines. He proposes uh, what's called a carbon fee and dividend uh, program in which the government puts a price on polluting um, energy sources sufficient to reduce the emissions from those sources, takes the revenue from that fee, and then distributes it on a per capita basis to every American. So therefore, it's called a revenue neutral um, uh, carbon tax. And that appeals to a guy like Bob, a conservative like Bob, a small government person that comes from a conservative political ideology uh, because it, um, it doesn't require, this would be uh, his uh, argument, I believe, it doesn't require um, a lot of government intervention. Now, Varshini, and they're appearing uh, in, in my film, which I'm really excited about, because to me, the important thing is that we have this conversation, that we d talk about these ideas and look for the promise and merits um, in all of them and find a path forward that uh, brings divergent and different viewpoints to the table, rowing in the same direction to, to address this um, challenge before us. Because um, we really, it's, it's such a big challenge, we're going to have to bring people together and find common ground. So uh, Varshini would tell you that, that, that Bob's approach isn't enough um, and uh, would have her own rationale for why. Um, my own view is um, both those ideas deserve uh, discussion and debate uh, and somewhere in there uh, is a path forward that a majority of us can agree on. And without that majority agreement, um, we're not going to get anywhere. So the important thing is we debate the ideas and the merits of those ideas and we find a path forward. Um, and so that's my you know, perspective on that. Um, so in your opinion, what is the biggest limitation in bringing about environmental change, whether that's nationwide, statewide, or just inspiring change among the general public? Well, that's a, it's a really important question, and I don't pretend to know the answer, and I suspect that it's several things. I think um, we often fail to recognize our own power, our own agency, our own ability to be a part of 
addressing the issue. We think that what we do is not consequential enough to have an impact and therefore we don't see ourselves um, as being a part of the problem. Um, you know the old uh, Pogo cartoon, I've met, I've met the enemy and, and uh, uh, it is us. Um, I'm not quite sure I got the quote right, but, <laughs> but my point is, you know, we want, we, we've uh, come to um, uh, measure uh, our success. Many of us have come to measure our success in life by the things that we can buy and purchase and own and our toys and um, we all have our cell phones and mm -hmm. you know I'm dying to do a uh, do the research I'm sure someone has done it and do a you know talk what's what's in what's in your cell phone right oh yeah um, yeah so there are trace minerals uh, many of which have been mined through slave labor mm -hmm. um, we uh, were were tempted to get a new cell phone um, to, you know with every new issue um, we've developed such an attachment to technology and see it as a critical part of our life. You guys are of a different generation than I. I'm on my first smartphone. Um, oh, yeah, that's a big step. That, well, I, the only the, the listen. I'm not quite the troglodyte. That makes me sound like <laughs> I. I worked in state government and I didn't want to carry two phones. Ah, yes. And, um, so I actually had a smartphone, but I couldn't use it as a smart, I, I could use it for making phone calls and doing yeah. email, but because it was owned by the state, I could only conduct state business on it. Yeah. So I stayed off of social media. I didn't use it for any personal purpose. Um, and so I only left state service uh, four and a half years ago, and yeah. that's when I got my, my first phone, because <laughs> I re absolutely refused to walk around with two phones, one for personal yeah, that's a, that's a and one. Lot. One for work. I know one lots, is enough. I know lots of people who do it, but so I, I think we fail to recognize our own role in being part of the problem. We we often fail to recognize our power to be a part of the um, solution, um, and um, that's uh, uh, challenging. We like our we like our comforts, but the fact is we can be pretty darn, you know pretty darn comfortable with a whole lot less stuff, and. Um, uh, for me, I'm trying to simplify my life. As we all need to sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think or view is the greatest environmental threat that maybe not, that's not climate change or not directly linked to climate change? Well, I, I think the uh, um, biodiversity loss, the... the um, report by the Global Assessment on uh, Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services that came out earlier this year was a real um, wake-up call. I think it uh, was predicting a, a business, if business mm -hmm. as usual occurred, a loss of, of um, a billion species. We're experiencing unprecedented rates of deforestation, overfishing, um, and these ha um, uh, things have had a dramatic impact on um, the health of our ecosystems and the diversity of uh, species living um, in the natural world, and we're dependent on them, um, dependent on insects to pollinate our crops, um, to feed, what, what do we add, 7.3 uh, approximately wow. billion yeah. people, so over 7 billion people. 
And so uh, biodiversity loss would, would certainly be the biggest global uh, threat after climate change. So do you have any, you got a couple books sitting next to you. Do you have any books that you would suggest to not even necessarily young people, but just anyone in, in particular yeah. to maybe help change or foster uh, a thorough, dynamic thought about the environment? Yeah, well, my favorite on climate, you know, I try, I, it's my job to get up in the morning and, and um, be aware of and what's happening in the climate change world. And that can wear a girl down doing that day in and day out. And I've been at it a long time. And there are days in which I'm really sad. There are other days in which I just feel anxious. I feel not like I've been a personal failure, but that this, because I've worked very hard and I, I've, um, my work has been very rewarding to me, but it's hard to um, uh, uh, fight this fight day in and day out and not be worn out by it. Or, um, and so I try really hard to um, learn the most I can about climate solutions because the fact is we, we know what we need mm -hmm. to know about how to address this problem. We lack the political will to do it um, and we don't have the familiarity we should have with how easy some of these things are. I mean, think of uh, food waste. Mm -hmm. um, no sacrifice. This does not require a sacrifice. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, or a reduction in quality of life. This saves you money. Mm -hmm. If food waste were a country, it'd be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the world after the U.S. and China. Um, it's kind of an, in the United States spends. We throw away forty percent of the food that's produced. You nobody who's poor buys food at the grocery store, brings it home, puts it in the refrigerator, and lets it rot in the back of the refrigerator. Yeah. It doesn't happen. We do it all the time, myself included, though I'm working on it. And I compost, that helps. Yeah. But, so, what most inspires me is this book, Project Drawdown, The 100 yeah. Top Climate Solutions. And the top 10 will shock the heck out of you. They are not at all what you would expect. Food waste is number three. Stopping deforestation is number five. Educating girls and providing reproductive health services to women in developing countries is number six. Did, have I said anything about renewable energy Nothing. or transportation? No. Nope. Nope. Now, so those are in, there, a couple of those are in the top 10, but I love those stories uh, that surprise you. Mm -hmm. um, empowering women as a, and girls as, and educating them as a climate solution. I didn't know that. Yeah. Food waste, number three. I didn't know that. And so that really excites me. So Project Drawdown is a no-brainer. And I will read and follow anything that Dr. John Foley does. He was the first Gaylord Nelson chair at the UW okay. Nelson cool. Institute of Environmental Studies. He's now the director of Project Drawdown. He uh, has also been director of the California Academy of Sciences. Um, he uh, is very active on social media. I would really strongly encourage your listeners to follow him because I love his philosophy. And he spends a lot of time telling the story of solutions and saying to people, 
climate change is a really big challenge, but we know what the solutions are. How do you build political will? You build it through understanding and knowledge. Um, and um, many of these don't, these don't even require government policies. Yeah. Would they be deployed faster, more effectively um, if, if government policy supported them? Absolutely. But this is technology available, readily available to us now. Or in some cases, no technology. Just don't waste food. Yeah. Don't buy food you're not going to consume. And um, we at Outrider have done a whole uh, video series on climate solutions, a social first short form video to help people understand they really can be a part of the solution. So that's my favorite. Um, uh, I, I, for people who are trying to, you know, there's been a lot of interesting um, advancement in understanding the psychology around uh, climate change communications, more advancement in a way than around some of the climate science in recent years. So I love this book, which is called Talking Change from Research to Practice in Public Engagement. And it basically compiles all the research on um, effective ways to communicate on on climate change. Um, when I was younger, my, my favorite book was Never Cry Wolf mm -hmm. um, by Farley Mowat. Um, I'm dyslexic, so a reading, and so college was really an unpleasant experience uh, for me. Um, I often see Dr. Shakashiri, who is my chemistry professor and still teaches on campus. I flunked his five-credit chemistry course. Oh. Uh, yeah, well, ouch. Um, that <coughs> delayed my graduation because it brought my grade point down. Oh, no. Uh, so I had enough credits to graduate, but I didn't have the grade point to graduate. Mm. And um, he keeps joking he's going to have me come uh, to his class and give a little talk. And I said, <laughs> what, you know, to, to say to people, you know, there is life after failing uh, <laughs> chemistry 101 on, at the university. Um, my, my point was that reading was, um, I, I love to read, but it was challenging for me and it was a slow slog and, and I just, I won't forget the experience of sort of feeling like I was in that cabin in, in Canada with Farley Mowat when he mm -hmm. was doing this pioneering research on, on uh, wolves. And so th that's a fairly... Um, diverse, uh, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't encourage uh, your listeners to read The Genius of Earth Day, which is uh, by Dr. Uh, Professor Adam Rome, uh, researched over many years. Um, a really interesting look at how the first Earth Day, which uh, my father was founder of, um, became this extraordinary success uh, beyond his wildest dreams, his original idea, his call to action was very simple. He only has, he had simply asked teachers to set aside a day and teach on the environment. And it became the most, the largest secular event in American history. 20 million people gathered on that day, April 22, 1970. And uh, Adam does this just extraordinary job of, of sort of, um, sifting and sorting through the history and pulling out of that lessons about how the movement became empowered by individuals acting at the community level um, in this organic grassroots way. And um, I love that book. And of course, as we head into the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, it's a, a great, great uh, um, history to reflect on. So briefly, what bits of advice would you have for students who are looking to becoming we're looking to become future leaders in the environmental movement. 
Well, I, um, there's lots of different ways to do that. I got a wildlife ecology degree from the university and found out pretty swiftly that I, um, this is not a big surprise upon reflection, am a terrible scientist. Um, and so I pivoted towards public policy, which I'm pretty good at and I'm very comfortable with. When I was little, I, I wanted to be with my father and mm -hmm. really there weren't a lot of options available to me. He had a very busy life and so I would go to work with him when I could and I would watch them on the Senate floor debate uh, issues, uh, for example. And, um, I got out of my field ecology and started working in the state capitol um, as sort of a junior, uh, very junior staffer in the Natural Resources Committee. And I learned how a bill becomes a law, just the basics of it. And um, I became fascinated by how, how you take an idea or an environmental solution and um, uh, create um, science-based um, uh, solutions um, through the legislative process. That was the right thing for me to do. It's not the right thing for everybody to do. Um, some people are great, great, have great scientific minds. So whether it's volunteering at a local environmental group and, and finding out whether you want to spend your time in the woods or the laboratory or in the capital, um, uh, it's important to know where you, where you feel um, comfortable and uh, where you feel a sense of excitement and reward and where you think you can make a difference. I would encourage everyone, uh, regardless of their political inclination or philosophy, to join the Citizen Climate Lobby. It's a fabulous organization that's operating in every congressional district in the United States of America. has um, uh, members of both parties and citizens are trained on how to see themselves as citizen lobbyists. One of the reasons, in my opinion, government isn't working as well as it should is we see government as something that's mm, yeah. separate from us. Government is a reflection of us. We have every right and every obligation to know what it's doing, to hold it accountable, and to be a part of it. And the Citizen Climate Lobby is a great uh, way to learn how to be comfortable seeing yourself as someone who's going to influence your elected officials. Because if we don't do that, we aren't, we're not going to get anywhere uh, in solving these big challenges. So whether you join the Citizen Climate Lobby or become a volunteer for the Nature Conservancy, um, find a place that, that, that uh, feeds your sense of excitement and makes you imagine yourself um, uh, growing and making a difference. So we're going to do some speed round questions now. Don't, okay. Don't, uh, have you ever thought about running for public office? I get answer, asked that question all the time. The answer is no. Okay. All right. Uh, favorite restaurant in Madison to eat at? Osteria Papavera. What's your order? Whatever the pasta special is. Okay. Okay. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Uh, light or dark roast? Well, actually, coffee in the morning, herbal tea at night. Okay. Understandable. Yeah. Uh, light or dark roast then? Dark. is Dark, dark, dark. Good answer. All right. Um... In your opinion, what is the best place to hike in, in Wisconsin? Oh, the best place to hike... Well, my favorite place in Wisconsin is the Apostle Islands. Uh -huh. um, the, my favorite place to hike nearby is, uh, no surprise, Gaylord Nelson State Park. <laughs> All right. And favorite thing to pick up at the farmer's market? 
Oh, it, I can't. There's not one favorite not thing. Not one. I, the only eggs I will eat come from the farmer's market. So whatever the fresh vegetables of the week mm -hmm. are, I get my eggs there every week. Um, I buy is almost all of my animal products either there or at the underground butcher. I, it's the least I can do. I buy uh, to buy locally sourced, humanely raised animals before I bring them into my house and eat them. <laughs> favorite variety of apple. Honeycrisp. I'm a it's hard to silly. beat. It's hard to beat. Yeah. A last one here. If they were making, someone's going to make a biopic about your life, a movie, who would you want to play? You. Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, uh, last night, yeah, I'm having a senior moment. Last night, someone <laughs> told me that I reminded them of an actress in um, and I thought, God, yeah, that nobody's ever. I, I, well, she's not alive. Catherine Hepburn. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but I really looked up to Catherine Hepburn. Okay. I thought she was awesome. She was wearing pants before any the rest of mm -hmm. us were. You know. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing your time with us and sharing your valuable insights. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This is where I came from.